Chapter Six of The Gamekeeper at Home. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Andy Minter. The Gamekeeper at Home by Richard Jeffreys. Chapter Six His Enemies, Birds and Beasts of Prey, Trespassers. There are other enemies of game life, besides human poachers, whose numbers must be kept within bounds to ensure successful sport. The thirst of the weasel for blood is insatiable, and it is curious to watch the persistency with which he will hunt down the particular rabbit he has singled out for destruction. Through the winding subterranean galleries of the burries, with their cross-passages, blind holes, and pop-holes, that is, those which end in undisturbed soil, and those which are simply bored from one side of the bank to the other, being only used for temporary concealment, Never once in the dark, close caverns, losing sight or scent of his victim, he pursues it with a species of eager patience. It is generally a long chase. The rabbit makes a dash ahead and a double or two, then halts, usually at the mouth of a hole, perhaps to breathe. By and by the weasel, baffled for a few minutes, comes up behind. Instantly the rabbit slips over the bank outside and down the ditch for a dozen yards, and there enters the bury again. The weasel follows, gliding up the bank with a motion not unlike that of the snake, for his body and neck are long and slender, and his legs short. Apparently he is not in haste, but rather lingers over the scent. This is repeated five or six times, till the whole length of the hedgerow has been traversed. Sometimes up and down again. The chase may be easily observed by anyone who will keep a little in the background. Although the bank be tenanted by fifty other rabbits, past whose hiding-place the weasel must go, yet they scarcely take any notice. One or two, whom he has approached too closely, bolt out and in again, but as a mass the furry population remain quiet, as if perfectly aware that they are not yet marked out for slaughter. At last, having exhausted the resources of the bank, the rabbit rushes across the field to a hedgerow, perhaps a hundred yards away. Here the wretched creature seems to find a difficulty in obtaining admittance. Hardly has he disappeared in a hole before he comes out again, as if the inhabitants of the place refused to give him shelter, for many animals have a strong tribal feeling, and their sympathy, like that of a man in a savage state, is confined within their special settlement. With birds it is the same. Rooks, for instance, will not allow a strange pair to build in their trees, but drive them off with relentless beak, tearing down the half-formed nest and taking the materials to their own use. The sentiment, If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, what good shall my life do me, appears to animate the breasts of gregarious creatures of this kind. Rooks intermarry generation after generation, and if a black lover brings home a foreign bride, they are forced to build in a tree at some distance. Near large rookeries several such outlying colonies may be seen. The rabbit, failing to find a cover, hides in the grass and dry rushes, but across the meadow, stealing along the furrow, comes the weasel, and shift his place how he may. In the end, worn out and weary, Bunny succumbs, and the sharp teeth meet in the neck behind the ear, severing the vein. Often, in the end, the rabbit runs to earth in a hole which is a cul-de-sac, with his back towards the pursuer. The weasel, unable to get at the pole, which is his desire, will mangle the hinder parts in a terrible manner, as will the civilised ferret under similar conditions. Now and then the rabbit, scratching and struggling, fills the hole in the rear with earth, 
and so at the last moment chokes off his assailant and finds safety almost in the death agony in the woods once the rabbit is away from the burries the chase really does resemble a hunt from furze bush to bracken from fern to rough grass round and round backwards doubling to and fro and all in vain at such times eager for blood the weasel will run right across your path almost close enough to be kicked pursue him in turn and if there be no hedge or hole near if you have him in the open he will dart hither and thither right between your legs uttering a sharp note of anger and alarm something composed of a tiny bark and a scream he is easily killed with a stick when you catch him in the open for he is by no means swift but if a hedge be near it is impossible to secure him weasels frequently hunt in couples and sometimes more than two will work together i once saw five and have heard of eight the five i saw were working in a sandy bank drilled with holes from which the rabbits in wild alarm were darting in all directions the weasels raced from hole to hole and along the sides of the bank exactly like a pack of hounds and seemed intensely excited their manner of hunting resembles the motions of ants these insects run a little way very swiftly then stop turn to the right or left make a short detour and afterwards on again in a straight line so the pack of weasels darted forward stopped went from side to side and then on a yard or two and repeated the process to see their reddish heads thrust for a moment from the holes then withdraw to reappear at another would have been amusing had it not been for the reflection that their frisky tricks would assuredly end in death they ran their quarry out of the bank and into a wood where i lost sight of them the pack of eight was seen by a labourer returning down a woodland lane from work one afternoon he told me he got into the ditch half from curiosity to watch them and half from fear laughable as that may seem for he had heard the old people tell stories of men in the days when the corn was kept for years in barns and so bred hundreds of rats being attacked by those vicious brutes he said they made a noise crying to each other short sharp snappy sounds but the pack of five i myself saw hunted in silence stoats though not so numerous as weasels probably do as much injury being larger swifter stronger and very bold sometimes entering sheds close to dwelling-houses the labouring people at least the elder folk declare that they have been known to suck the blood of infants left asleep in the cradle upon the floor biting the child behind the ear they hunt in couples also seldom in larger numbers i have seen three at work together and with a single shot killed two out of the trio in elegance of shape they surpass the weasel and the colour is brighter their range of destruction seems only limited by their strength they attack anything they can manage the keeper looks upon weasel and stoat as bitter foes to be ruthlessly exterminated with shot and gin he lays to their charge deadly crimes of murder the death of rabbits hares birds the theft and destruction of his young broods and even occasional abstraction of a chicken close to his very door despite the dogs chained there they are not easily shot being quick to take shelter at the sight of a dog and when hard hit with the pellets frequently escaping though perhaps to die both weasel and stoat and especially the latter will snap viciously at the dog that overtakes them even when sore wounded always aiming to fix their teeth in his nose and fighting savagely to the last gasp the keeper slays a wonderful number in the course of a year yet they seem as plentiful as ever he traps perhaps more than he shoots it is not always safe to touch a stoat caught in a trap he lies apparently dead but lift him up and instantly his teeth are in your hand 
and it is said such wounds sometimes fester for months. Stoats are tough as leather, though severely nipped by the iron fangs of the gin, struck on the head with the butt of the gun, and seemingly quite lifeless. Yet, if thrown on the grass and left, you will often find on returning to the place in a few hours' time that the animal is gone. Warned by experiences of this kind, the keeper never picks up a stoat till settled with a stick or shot, and never leaves him till he is nailed to the shed. Stoats sometimes emit a disgusting odour when caught in a trap. The keeper has no mercy for such vermin, though he thinks some of his feathered enemies are even more destructive. Twice a year the hawks and other birds of prey find a great feast spread before them, first in the spring and early summer, when the hedges and fields are full of young creatures scarcely able to use their wings, and again in the severe weather of winter, when cold and hunger have enfeebled them. It is difficult to understand upon what principle the hawk selects his prey. He will pass by with apparent disdain birds that are within easy reach, Sometimes a whole cloud of birds will surround and chase him out of a field, and he pursues the even tenor of his way, unmoved, though sparrow and finch almost brush against his talons. Perhaps he has the palate of an epicure, and likes to vary the dish of flesh torn alive from the breast of partridge, chicken, or mouse. He does not eat all he kills. He will sometimes carry a bird a considerable distance, and then drop the poor thing. Once recently I saw a hawk, pursued by twenty or thirty finches, and other birds across a ploughed field, suddenly drop a bird from his claws as he passed over a hedge. The bird fell almost perpendicularly, with a slight fluttering of the wings, just sufficient to preserve it from turning head over heels, and on reaching the hedge could not hold to the first branches, but brought up on one near the ground. It was a sparrow, and was not apparently hurt, simply breathless from fright. All kinds of birds are sometimes seen with the tail-feathers gone. Have they barely escaped in this condition from the clutches of the hawk? Blackbirds, thrushes, and pigeons are frequently struck. The hawk seems to lay them on the back, for if he is disturbed, that is the position his victim usually remains in. Though hawks do not devour every morsel, yet, as a rule, nothing is found but the feathers, usually scattered in a circle. Even the bones disappear— Probably ground vermin make away with the fragments. The hawk is not always successful in disabling his prey. I have seen a partridge dash to the ground, get up again, and escape. The bird was flying close to the ground when struck. The hawk alighted on the grass a few yards further in a confused way, as if overbalanced, and before he could reach the partridge the latter was up and found shelter in a thick hedge. The power to hover or remain suspended in one place in the air does not, as some have supposed, depend on the assistance of the wind, against which the hawk inclines the plane of his wings like an artificial kite. He can accomplish the feat when the air is quite still, and no wind stirring. Nor is he the only bird capable of doing this, although the others possess the power in a much less degree. The common lark sometimes hovers for a few moments low down over the young green corn, as if considering upon what spot to alight. The flycatcher contrives to suspend itself momentarily, but it is by a rapid motion of the wings, and is done when the first snap at the insect has failed. It is the rook that hovers by the assistance of the wind, as he rises with his broad flat wings over a hedge and meets its full force, which counterpoises his onward impetus, and sustains him stationary, sometimes compelling him to return with the current. Hawks have a habit of perching on the tops of bare poles or dead trees, and are there frequently caught in the gin that the keeper sets for them. 
the cuckoo which so curiously resembles the hawk has the same habit and will perch on a solitary post in the middle of a field or on those upright stones sometimes placed for the cattle to rub themselves against though wild as a hawk is a proverbial phrase yet hawks are bold enough to enter gardens and even take their prey from the ivy which grows over the gable of the house the destruction they work among the young partridges in early summer is very great the keeper is always shooting them yet they come just the same or nearly for if he exterminates them one season others arrive from a distance he is particularly careful to look out for their nests so as to kill both the old birds and to prevent their breeding there is little difficulty in finding the nest which is built in a high tree when the young get to any size their cry is unmistakable and audible at some distance against sparrow-hawk and kestrel and the rarer kinds that occasionally come down from the mountains of the north or the west the magazines of these birds the keeper wages ceaseless war so too with jay and magpie he shoots them down whenever they cross his path unless as is sometimes the case specially ordered to save the latter for the magpie of recent years has become much less common though still often seen in some districts there are other localities where this odd bird is nearly extinct it does not seem to breed now and you may ask to be shown a nest in vain a magpie's nest in an orchard that i knew of was thought so great a curiosity that every now and then people came to see it from a distance in other places the bird may be frequently met with almost always with his partner and so jays usually go in couples even in winter the jay is a handsome bird whose chatter enlivens the plantations and whose bright plumage contrasts pleasantly with the dull green of the firs a pair will work a hedge in a sportsmanlike manner one on one side the second on the other while the tiny wren which creeps through the bushes as a mouse through the grass cowers in terror or slips into a knot-hole till the danger is past when the husbandman has sown his field with the drill hardly has he left the gateway before a legion of small birds pours out from the hedgerows and seeks for the stray seeds then you may see the jay hop out among them with an air of utter innocence settling upon the larger lumps of clay for convenience of view swelling out his breast in pride of beauty jerking his tail up and down as if to say admire me with a sidelong hop and two flaps of the wind he half springs half glides to another coin of vantage the small birds sparrows chaffinches greenfinches instantly scatter swiftly right and left not rising but with a hasty run for a yard or so they know well his murderous intent and yet are so busy they only put themselves just out of reach aware that unlike the hawk he cannot strike at a distance this game will continue for a long time the jay all the while affecting an utter indifference yet ever on the alert till he spies his chance it is the young or weakly partridges and pheasants that fall to the jay and magpie the keeper also destroys owls on suspicion now and then some one argues with the keeper assuring him that they do not touch game but this he regards as pure sentimentalism look at his beak is his steady reply tell me that that there bill weren't made to tear a bird's breast to bits just see here all crooked and pointed why an owl have got a hooked bill just like an eagle it stands to reason as he must be in mischief so the poor owls are shot and trapped and nailed to the side of the shed but upon the crow the full vials of the keeper's wrath are poured and not without reason 
the crow among birds is like the local professional among human poachers he haunts the place and clears everything it would be hard to say what comes amiss to him he is the impersonation of murder his long stout pointed beak is a weapon of deadly power wielded with surprising force by the sinewy neck from a tiny callow fledgling fallen out of the thrush's nest to the partridge or a toothsome young rabbit it is all one to him even the swift leveret is said sometimes to fall a prey being so buffeted by the sooty wings of the assassin and so blinded by the sharp beak striking at his eyes as to be presently overcome for the crow has a terrible penchant for the morsel afforded by another's eyes i have seen the skull of a miserable thrush from which a crow rose and slowly sailed away literally split as if by a chisel doubtless by the blow that destroyed its sight birds that are at all diseased or weakly as whole broods sometimes are in wet unkindly seasons rabbits touched by the dread parasite that causes the fatal rot the young pheasant straying from the coop even the chicken at the lone farmstead where the bailiff only lives and is in the field all day these are the victims of the crow crows work almost always in pairs it is remarkable that hawks jays magpies crows nearly all birds of prey seem to remain in pairs the entire year and when they have once tasted a member of a brood be it pheasant partridge or chicken they stay till they have cleared off the lot slow of flight and somewhat lazy of habit they will perch for hours on a low tree croaking and pruning their feathers they peer into every nook and corner of the woodlands not like the swift hawk who circles over and is gone and in a few minutes is a mile away so that neither the mouse in the furrow nor the timid partridge cowering in the hedge can escape their leering eyes therefore the keeper smites them hip and thigh whenever he finds them and if he comes across the nest placed on the broad top of a pollard tree not in the branches but on the trunk sends his shot through it to smash the eggs for if the young birds come to maturity they will remain in that immediate locality for months working every hedge and copse and ditch with cruel pertinacity in consequence of this unceasing destruction the crow has become much rarer of late and its nest is hardly to be found in many woods they breed in the scattered trees of the meadows and fields especially where no regular game preservation is attempted and where no keeper goes his rounds even to this day a lingering superstition associates this bird with coming evil and i have heard the women working in the fields remark that such and such a farmer then lying ill would not recover for a crow had been seen to fly over his house but just above the roof-tree trespassers give him a good deal of trouble for a great wood seems to have an irresistible attraction for all sorts of semi-bohemians besides those who come for poaching purposes the keeper thinks it is much more difficult to watch a wood like this which is continuous and all in one than it is to guard a number of detached plantations though in the aggregate they may cover an equal area it is impossible to see into it any distance to walk round it is a task of time a poacher may slink from tree to tree and from thicket to thicket and unless the dogs chance to sniff him out may lie hidden in tangled masses of fern and bramble while the keeper passes not ten yards away but plantations laid out in regular order with broad open spaces sometimes with small fields between do not afford anything like cover for human beings if a man is concealed in one of those copses 
and finds that the keeper or his assistants are about to go through it, he must move or be caught, and in moving he has to pass across an open space, and is nearly sure to be detected. In a continuous wood of large extent, if he hears the keeper coming, he has but to slip as rapidly and silently as possible to one side, and often has the pleasure to see them pass right over the spot where only recently he was lying. Therefore, although a wood is much more beautiful from an artistic point of view, with its lovely greens in spring, and yellows and browns in autumn, its shades and recesses, and fern-strewn glades, yet if a gentleman desires to imitate the monarch who laid out the new forest, and plant wood, and his object be simply game, the keeper is of the opinion that the somewhat stiff and trim plantations are preferable. They are generally of fir, and fir is the most difficult of trees to slip past, being decidedly of an obstructive turn. The boughs grow so close to the ground that unless you crawl you cannot go under them. The trunks, unlike those of many other trees, will flourish so near together that the extremities of the branches touch and almost interweave, and they are rough and unpleasant to push through. To shoot or trap or use a net or other poacher's implement is very difficult in a young fir plantation because of this thickness of growth, so that in a measure the tree itself protects the game. Then the cover afforded is warm and liked by the birds, and so for many reasons the fir has become a great favourite, notwithstanding that it is of very little value when finally cut down. For fox-preserving, firs are hardly so suitable because the needles or small sharp leaves quite destroy all undergrowth, not only by the turpentine they contain, but by forming a thick mat, as it were, upon the earth. This mass of needles takes years to all appearance to decay, and no young green blade or shoot can get through it. Besides which, the fir boughs above make a roof almost impenetrable to air and light, the chief necessities of a plant's existence. Foxes like a close, warm undergrowth, such as firs, sedges, when the ground is dry, the underwood that springs up between the ash-stoles. Although constantly out of doors, if such a phrase be allowable, foxes seem to dislike cold and draught, as do weasels and all their kind, notably ferrets. But for pure game-watching and for convenience of watching, the keeper thinks the detached plantations of fir preferable. Doubtless he is professionally right, and yet somehow a great wood seems infinitely more English, and appeals to the heart far more powerfully, with its noble oaks and beeches and ash-trees, its bramble thickets and brake and endless beauties, which a life of study will not exhaust. But the semi-Bohemians detested by the keeper do not prowl about the confines of a wood with artistic views. Their objects are extremely prosaic, and though not always precisely injurious, yet they annoy him beyond endurance. He is like a spider in the centre of a vast spreading web, and the instant the most outlying threads, in this case represented by fences, are broken, he is all agitation till he has expelled the intruder. Men and boys in the winter come stealing into the wood where the blackthorn thickets are for sloes, which are reputed to be improved by the first frosts, and are used for making slow gin, etc., those they gather they sell, of course, and although the pursuit may be perfectly harmless in itself, how is the keeper to be certain that, if opportunity offered, these gentry would not pounce upon a rabbit or anything else? Others come for the dead wood, and it does, on the face of it, seem hard to deny an old woman who has worked all her days in the field a bundle of fallen branches rotting under the trees. 
The accumulations of such dead sticks in some places are astonishing. The soil under the ash-poles must slowly rise from the mass of decaying wood, and ultimately become greatly enriched by this natural manure. When a hard clay soil is revealed by the operations for draining a meadow, and the crust of black or reddish mould on which the sweet green grass flourishes is seen to be but spade-deep, the idea naturally occurs that the thin crust must have been originated by some similar process to what is going on now in the ashwood. Those six or nine inches of mould perhaps represent several centuries of forest, but if the keeper admits the old woman shivering over her embers in the cottage to pick up these dead boughs, how can he tell what further tricks others may be up to? The privilege has often been offered, and has often abused, until at last it has been finally withdrawn, not only because of the poaching carried on under the cloak of picking up dead wood, but because the intruders tore down fine living branches from the trees, and spoiled and disfigured them without mercy. Sometimes gentlemen go to the expense of having wood periodically gathered and distributed among the poor, which is a considerate system, and worthy of imitation where possible. Occasionally men come to search for walking-sticks, for which there is now a regular trade. Just at present natural sticks, that is, those cut from the stem with the bark on, are rather popular, both for walking and for umbrella handles, which causes this kind of search to be actively prosecuted. The best natural sticks are those which, when growing, were themselves young trees, sprung up direct from seed or shoots, saplings, which are stronger and more pliant than those cut from a stole or pollard. To cut such a stick as this is equivalent to destroying a future tree, and of course a good deal of mischief may be easily done in a short time. Another kind of ash-stick which is in demand is one round which there runs a spiral groove. This spiral is caused by the bine of honeysuckle or woodbine, and in some cases by wild hops. These climbing plants grow in great profusion when they once get fixed in the soil, and twist their tendrils or leaders round and round the tall, straight young ash-poles, with so tight a grasp as to partly strangle the stick, and form a deep screw-like groove in it. When well polished, or sometimes in its rough state, such a stick attracts customers, and so popular is this style of thing that the spiral groove is frequently cut by the lathe in more expensive woods than ash. Wild hops are common in many places, and will almost destroy a hedge or a little copse by the power with which they twine their coils about stem and branch. Young oak saplings in the same way are frequently cut, and the potential tree which might have grown large enough to form part of a ship's timbers is sold for a shilling. Holly is another favourite wood for sticks, and fetches more money than oak or ash, on account of its ivory-like whiteness when peeled. To get a good stick with a knob to it frequently necessitates a considerable amount of cutting and chopping, and does far more damage than the loss of the stick itself represents. Neither blackthorn nor crabtree seem so popular as they once were for this purpose. In the autumn, scores of men, women, and children scour the hedges and woods for acorns, which bring a regular price per bushel or sack, affording a valuable food for pigs. Others seek elderberries to sell for making wine, and for a few weeks a trade is done in blackberries. Chair-menders and basket-makers frequent the shore of the little mere or lake, looking for bulrushes or flags. The old rush-bottomed chairs are still to be found in country houses, and require mending, and flag-baskets are much used. Hazelnuts and filberts perhaps cause more trouble than all the rest. 
This fruit is now worth money, and in some countries the yield of nuts is looked forward to in the same way as any other crop, as in Kent, where cob-nuts are cultivated, and where the disorderly hop-pickers are great thieves. I have heard of owners of copses losing ten or fifteen pounds' worth of nuts by a single raid. Here, in this wood, no attempt is made to obtain profit from the fruit, yet it gives rise to much trouble. The nut-stealers take no care in pulling down the boughs, but break them shamefully, destroying entire bushes, and for this reason, in many places, where nutting was once freely permitted, it is now rigidly repressed. Just before the nuts come ripe, they are gathered by men employed on the place, and thrown down in sackfuls, making great heaps by the public footpaths, ocular evidence that it is useless to enter the wood a-nutting. The keeper thinks that these trespassers grow more coarsely mischievous year by year. He can remember when the wood in a measure was free and open, and provided a man had not got a gun or was not suspected of poaching, he might roam pretty much at large, while the resident labouring people went to and fro by the nearest shortcut they could find. But whether the railways bring rude strangers with no respect for the local authorities, or whether tramps have become more numerous, it is certain that only by constant watchfulness can downright destruction be prevented. It is not only the game preserved within that closes these beautiful woodlands to the public, but the wanton damage to tree and shrub, the useless, objectless mischief so frequently practised. For instance, a column of smoke curling like a huge snake round the limbs of a great tree, and then floating away from the topmost branches, is a singular spectacle, so opposed to the ordinary current of ideas as to be certain of attracting the passer-by. It is the work, of course, of some mischievous lout, who has set fire to the hollow interior of the tree. Such a tree, as previously pointed out, is the favourite resort of bird and insect life. The heedless mischief of the bird-keeping boys or the plough-lads rambling about on Sunday destroys this hôtel de ville of the forest or hedgerow, the central house of assembly of the birds. To light a fire seems one of the special delights of these lads, and sometimes of men who should have learnt better, and to light it in a hollow tree is the highest flight of genius. A few handfuls of withered grass and dead fern, half a dozen dry sticks, a lucifer match, and the thing is done. The hollow within the tree is shaped like an inverted funnel, large at the bottom and decreasing upward, where, at the pointed roof, one thin streak of daylight penetrates. This formation is admirably adapted to draw a fire at the bottom, and so, once lit, it is not easily put out. The touchwood smoulders and smokes immensely, and a great black column rises in the air. So it will go on, smouldering and smoking for days, till nothing but a charred stump be left. Now and then there is sufficient sap yet remaining in the bark and out a ring of wood to check the fire when it reaches it, and finally it dies out, being unable to burn the green casing of the trunk. Even then, so strong is the vital force, the oak may stand for years and put forth leaves on its branches, leaves which, when dead, will linger, loath to fall, almost through the winter, rusting in the wind till the buds of spring push them off. Graver mischief is sometimes committed with the lucifer match, and with more of the set purpose of destruction. In the vast expanse of firs outside the wood on the high ground, the huntsmen are almost certain of a find, and, if they can get between the fox and the wood, of a rattling burst along the edge of the downs. No wonder, therefore, that both they and the keeper set store by this breadth of bush. 
To this great covert more than once some skulking scoundrel has set fire, taking good care to strike his match well to windward, so that the flames may drive across the hole, and to choose a wind which would also endanger the wood. Now nothing flares up with such a sudden fierceness as furs, and there is no possibility of stopping it. With a loud crackling and swaying of pointed tongues of flame, visible miles away, even at noontide, and a cloud of smoke, the rift rolls on, licking up grass and fern and heath, and its hot breath goes before it, and the blast rises behind it. As on the beach, the wave seems to break at the foot, and then, in an instant, the surf runs away along the sand. So, from its first start, the flame widens out right and left with a greedy eagerness, and what, five minutes ago, was but a rolling bonfire, is now a wall of fire a quarter of a mile broad and swelling as it goes. Then happens on a lesser scale exactly the same thing that travellers describe of the burning prairies of the far west, a stampede of the thousands of living creatures, bird and beast, rabbits, hares, foxes, weasels, stoats, badgers, wildcats, all rushing in a maddened frenzy of fear they know not whither. Often, with a strange reversal of instinct, so to say, they will crowd together right in the way of the flames, huddling in hundreds where the fire must pass, and no effort of voice or presence of man will drive them away. The hissing, crackling fire sweeps over, and in an instant all have perished. No more miserable spectacle can be witnessed than the terror of these wretched creatures. Birds seem to fly into the smoke and are suffocated. They fall and are burned. Hares, utterly beside themselves, will rush almost into the arms of the crowd that assembles, and, of course, picks up what it can seize. The flames blacken and scorch the firs and trees on the edge of the wood, and the marks of their passage are not obliterated for years. Apart from the torture of animals, the danger to sport, both hunting and shooting, is immense, and takes long to remedy, for although firs and ferns soon shoot again, yet animal life is not so quickly repaired. Sometimes a few sheep wandering from the downs are roasted alive in this manner, and one or more dogs from the crowd watching are sure to run into the flames, which seem to exercise a fascination over some canine minds. The keeper's wrath bubbles up years afterwards as he recalls the scene, and it would not be well for the incendiary if he fell into his hands. But the mischief can be so easily done that it is rarely these rascals are captured. End of chapter 6